0: You're listening to the PR Wind Down Podcast, the show for public relations professionals who are ready to see real change in the PR industry. We are your hosts, April White and Laura Schooler. Let's get ready to wind down. Okay, so Laura Schouler. Yes, April. How have you been? What's new? Do you know who Daryl Strawberry is? I know the name, but why am I not placing him? So
1: Daryl Strawberry should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame, but he was derailed by drugs, alcohol, and such. Oh, no. More home runs on the Mets than anybody who's ever played for the Mets. He started his career on the Mets. Then he went to the Dodgers briefly, and then he ended his career, I think, on the Yankees. So he's like one of these guys who played for the Mets and the Yankees. And he, long story short, became very religious. And now he's like going all over the country, you know, giving sermons. And two of my friends sent me a message last week that he was going to be the guest guest minister and i might be using all these words wrong i'm the least knowledgeable of religion of anybody you've ever met so pardon my faux pas anyway it's in ocean grove new jersey so my friends saw that he was going to be a guest pastor and they two different people sent it to me like back to back that he was going to be the guest at this church in the next town over from Asbury Park, where I am a lot. I've never gotten up to go to church in my entire life, ever, not once. So I got up and I rode my bike (laughs) to Ocean Grove, which is a very unique town, right on the ocean. So anyway, so Daryl Strawberry, you know, he, in his sermon was telling a lot of stories about his life, and then about, you know, the, the Bible and Bible stories to help connect people. And he kept telling more and new ones and bringing people in. And I thought that would be an interesting way to kick off our interview today because it's all about storytelling.
0: Oh, and the power of storytelling. Yeah. I love that. Well, with that, should we let our guest in? I think we should. All right. I'm letting Jennifer in. So our guest today is Jennifer Clower. She is the founder and CEO of Story Changes Culture, a media platform. She's been recognized for her storytelling acumen by Business Insider, who ranked her among the best PR people in tech, and by cio.com. She's also a Gold Stevie Award recipient at a Women's Media Center, she source expert. She was also on the founding team of the Linux Foundation and is representing clients including Google, Puppet, IBM, Comcast, NBC Universal, the Linux Foundation, Intel, among others, and she will be my co-panelist at the Women Future Conference, which will have closed by the time this airs. So we wanted to have Jennifer on to share some insights from our presentation. Very excited. Yes, yes, <laughs> I'm excited too. So, so wait,
1: so- t- tell what is that for for me and all of the listeners? <laughs>
0: So it's essentially a panel discussion about the power of storytelling. And Jennifer and I are two of four that are going to be, you know, sort of tackling from different angles. And Jennifer, I believe, is sort of in the, how do you set the stage for storytelling part of the branding that then moves into like setting the stage for PR.
2: Yeah, I've I've done a lot of different types of storytelling. I also do kind of the media relations and outreach as well, trying to place stories on behalf of my clients. But huh. I was the executive producer of the Chasing Grace project, which is a documentary about women in tech, where we really put our storytelling chops to the test, and that worked out really really well. But yeah, we'll talk a little bit about how you know you architect a story, what makes a compelling story, especially in a world that is just so saturated with so many messages um how do you rise above the noise um so yeah
0: so so Laura today we're going to talk with Jennifer kind of about the same thing like the power of storytelling for brands how do you unlock that effective PR storytelling Let's just start there. Yeah, um, yeah, that jump- sounds great. And Jennifer, I'm curious if you have any entry point that you're most passionate about when it comes to storytelling we want to use as a jumping off point. To me,
2: this is not controversial, but uh, clients can be very uncomfortable with the idea of tension, but story isn't really story without tension, right? And I say tension because it doesn't have to be conflict. It doesn't have to be like deep, scary tension, but there's gotta be some sort of tension In order to tell a story at least with the traditional story arc which is still used 98 99 percent of the time so you know character and then tension and then that hope or inspiration that gets us to the next level of understanding about whatever it is we're talking about but and that kind of also all boils down to emotion right i think good story both informs and entertains and the only way to entertain is to kind of you know um strike strike at those emotions that we all have You know, if you Mm -hmm. think about your favorite movie or television show or podcast, you know, there's probably something about it that connects with you on an emotional level. Like you've experienced something similar to what you're seeing or you're, you know, you want to go live this life that you're seeing because of these different kind of emotional triggers in your own life. So, you know, connecting on an emotional level and not being afraid of the tension that is inherent in really any story. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and like the hero hero's journey, there always has to be yeah, something that yeah. they're overcoming, right? So then that's why they, yeah. we always love those founder stories like they started in a garage with yeah you know, their dog <laughs> and 5 dollars or whatever <laughs> like right, I mean right. I hear, we hear it all the time, but those kinds of stories are interesting because they overcame
2: these exactly. odds, you know. Do you disruptors. know what there is
1: there's a great documentary that maybe you have seen that just came out on the band Wham
2: Oh, <laughs> oh, I've George. heard of it. I haven't seen it yet. I haven't right. seen and it George, yet. But I hear George it's Michael.
1: great. So, yeah. and the reason why it's so great is because it only—and maybe people would say this isn't honest or the full picture—but it only really focuses on the very positive and uplifting relationship between Andrew Ridgely and George Michael, and it doesn't mm-hmm. go into George Michael's later on like troubled life. Obviously he's no longer with us because of it, but right, um, right. it's so uplifting and you just get this sense of like this judgment-free friendship. And that it's funny because George Michael went on to be the most famous man on the planet, right? And Andrew Ridgely, like half the world or more, whatever, doesn't even know who he is. But he was right. actually the one who brought George Michael, who was this terribly awkward, shy weirdo, I guess, out of his shell and like set him free and has no, negative feelings about it whatsoever like he's just the most confident awesome dude ever is how he comes (laughs) out in the end and so it was just really interesting because so many of these documentaries and believe me i watch a lot of like rock and roll documentaries like you know the motley crew or whatever and they you know (laughs) go down in flames with drugs and everybody hates each other and this was the opposite of that and i feel like it was the Mm. the right story at the right time and so i think that's important
2: too Oh, so true. I think timeliness is everything. In fact, the Chasing Grace project that I mentioned that we produced a few years ago—we started that in 2017 and it ran through Um, 2020—and it was about women in tech and it was about women's experiences in the tech industry. And we didn't shy away from what those experiences looked like, but how those women were kind of rising above those experiences to like Mm -hmm. start really inspiring, you know, um, paths across tech. But the timing was right. I mean, it was when I don't know if you remember when Newsweek had a cover, you know. About women in tech, and I mean, it was just everywhere in the news, and so the timing was right for that story. I think that, that that is such an important point. And then I think it's upon our storytellers to identify, you know, what is the timely hook for whatever story we need to tell, what can we bridge it to? I'm always working with clients to say, okay, let's t- sit down and nail out your three point of, points of view, but they need to connect to something that mm-hmm. journalists are thinking about and caring about right now, and also the collective culture, uh, if you will.
0: Right. How do you get your clients comfortable with that idea of tension when they're mm-hmm. not inherently interested in revealing those kinds of
2: painful details at the outset? Yeah. For clients who are a little bit more conservative, we'll often look at the tension within their customers, right? What is happening, changing, transforming within their customer stories? that Mm -hmm. is that is full of tension right so we can go there and that that's kind of gets down to your old challenge solution right like what are what are customers having to overcome and how does this solution kind of address that so again that's with more of the conservative clients with some of the clients who are interested in kind of walking into some of those you know crazy waters I mean, tech in my industry right now i mean there's all kinds of stuff going on you're almost going to get called out if you don't take a, point, a position on some things, right? Like yeah. employees want to know what you feel, how you feel about certain things. And there's a nuance to that. Right. But, but I think you have to walk into those waters now. I don't think you have much of a choice.
0: Yeah. That's good advice. If your clients are towing the line and sort of not saying anything new, that isn't already being said, how do you mm-hmm. gently tell them? Hey, we need you to have a hotter take on this, or we need to find something that you have something different yeah. to say. Yeah, <laughs> or like, how do you approach that?
2: Often, what I'll do is I will revisit. You know, hopefully, in most engagements, I'm working directly with the CEO because that's important on these types of storytelling yeah. strategies and tactics, but. I'll try to get a dedicated hour either in person or by zoom with the CEO to revisit what's on their mind. How is their vision evolving based on what's happening in the industry right now? And, you know, it takes some prompting and pushing because the CEOs are pulled in a million different directions Mm -hmm. and they've set a vision and they want to stay consistent with that vision, but it's really kind of a series of questions we will ask and prompt them to try to pull out you know, new points of view. And oftentimes they'll have a new point of view or a new take on something and they don't even realize it until they're sitting down talking to a storyteller. And then you'll hear something and go, wait a minute, that's different and interesting. And let us let me ask you some follow-ups there and we'll get that. Yeah. Also like in a situation where there's something breaking and I know a client's going to have an interesting take on something you know, I would take a stab at writing something for them, right? And putting it in front of them and letting them tweak it as necessary. But sometimes, you know, just putting words in their mouth will prompt them to go, okay, interesting, but I won't, I wouldn't say it that way. Okay, great. Put it in your own words. How Mm -hmm. would you say Mm -hmm. it? Right. Yeah, that's good advice.
0: Have you ever actually tried to apply the storytelling conventions that are used by storytellers and like, do you break it down for clients or do you just kind of walk them into it without explaining to them mm. how it fits together?
2: I prefer to start with basically a storytelling audit where, you know, if they've got the time to commit, I I do interview a number of stakeholders and then I play back to them what I think their most interesting story arc is. And I'll break down mm. kind of like, here's the characters, the setting, what's happening right now. Here's the tension I think we can, either create or that exists and and then here's the kind of inspirational way that we can, you know, tell that that overcome story or whatever that mm-hmm. that looks like for that inspiration. And then we also always do a tone of voice which is a grid with attributes that you embody because I think that the way you deliver a story is as important as the story itself in terms of your tone of voice, where you're delivering it and what venues and to whom. So we do some of that work as well, but In the ideal engagement, we break it all down, but it doesn't happen every time. Yeah, I can see that. Do you have a favorite story
0: from a client? Mm.
2: A lot of people know what Linux is. You know, I started working with the creator of Linux, Linus Torvalds, a long time ago uh, when Linux was kind of on the rise. Mm. And the reason this is also a good example, because the reason that story was so compelling was because linux was basically the it's a david and glad story with microsoft windows at the time and lena sorvalds was exactly that guy i don't know if he had a dog or five bucks but he was in his basement (laughs) and he was you know creating what would become the most ubiquitous operating system in the world and so it was kind of this real disruptor you know grassroots really interesting story and reporters loved it so it was you know it was a great thing to pitch but We told that story every which way in, you know, all kinds of different places. And we ended up on the the cover of Business Week when Business Week had a nice, you know, actual magazine. Again, I bring that example up because it's just, it's had characters. It had a lot of tension. A lot of the people involved in Linux were rebels, still are. And so they don't mind saying things that are super controversial. So there's that tension built right in. I love that. It's so great. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, Jennifer, what questions do you have for us? I've been asking you all the questions like you're on the witness stand.
2: Mm. <laughs> well, I love the name of your firm, Trust Relations, because I think trust is obviously the kind of number one consideration I think all of us are thinking about as we move into the future with such a, uh, can I say, sh- show of misinformation <laughs> you out there, absolutely right? can. Yeah, totally I mean true. it's really yeah. it's really concerning what's happening, and I it's think bad. the care profession really has to do some thinking about how they're going to support executives and companies in this new environment. So, anyways, would love to hear more about the uh, origin story of that name and where you're focused.
0: Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, I found out that trust relations is actually a term in IT when you get two servers to trust each other, and then they will share information. Mm-hmm. And it was something that I was like, oh, that's really kind of the the way of the future, right? Because PR has gotten yeah. such a bad rap because it's all about spin. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. PR became synonymous with stretching the truth, right? Yeah. And I just don't think we can do that anymore with the way of the world, right? Mm-hmm. the The consumer and the public now have so much power with social media. That it really needs to be a dialogue between the brand and the end user, right? It can't any longer be this. The brands are just, you know, buying all of the ad spaces and everybody gets fed the same thing and believes it, right? That's not that that was that was in the past. So, So now it's the kind of thing where you really have to put your money where your mouth is. I like to say you have to you have to do the story before you can tell the story, So you have to, like your story doing has to precede your storytelling. So you have to actually (laughs) be doing the things. Or if the storytelling isn't quite matching the level of action or activity that you're doing, that's okay too. But let's figure out then how do we put your brand values into more action in a visible way to substantiate all the claims that we're making. So really the idea of it is trying to redefine PR to be trust relations Mm -hmm. because i think Mm -hmm. that that's where things need to go instead of that pr like and even public relations kind of almost gives it that feeling of the brands being coming from the sermon on the mountain like speaking down
2: Mm -hmm. to the the people Mm -hmm. below right
0: and it's like that's not that's just not even how it works
2: anymore (laughs) so yeah this is gonna sound like a plug, so it kind of is, I suppose. But everything. That's great. You're saying... I was I
0: was literally gonna ask you to plug something next, so just organically, just like moving. Okay. Into it.
2: All right. Everything you're saying reminds me of a podcast that I host. I co-host it with a former colleague of mine. We actually, she was the CMO, and I was the VP of Communications at the Linux Foundation. And she has a long history in PR, but we actually. It's called Hyped uh, How Public Relations Influences Everything. And it really has to do with like the origins of PR, why it does have such a bad rap, and starts to kind of talk about, you know, how do we move forward from here? We haven't quite got there. We've got one season done. But, anyways, check, I invite you to check it out and also your listeners if they're interested. But Absolutely. We, we go into a lot of that. Yeah.
0: I love that. We'll make sure that's in the show notes too. So everybody can. Cool. Go check out when you when you run out of our show to listen to. Right, right. <laughs> go, exactly. over to, go over to Hype. <laughs> <Yep, laughs> awesome, yep. cool. Well, Jennifer, where can people find you?
2: Um, StoryChangesCulture.com. I'm on LinkedIn, of course, and Twitter, and I'm trying out threads, so you can find me. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> great, great. Thank okay, you. Thanks, thanks Jennifer. Take yeah.
0: care. Bye. Right, bye. Well, that was super exciting to have Jennifer on. and. I am also very excited, Laura, for our next segment because this is a new story that you have been very passionate about. <laughs> I think because you are so passionate about this, you should describe to our listeners what the story is about and why they should care and why it's relevant to PR.
1: So it's a, it's another article in Fortune, and it's entitled "Gen Z is Embracing Lazy Girl Jobs in a Rebuke of Millennials' Girl Boss." and lean-in manias. A, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about a lot of you know senior leaders saying you have to be in office in order to network and be on the team. And, and I was very uh, passionate about that because I felt like that wasn't true. And you agreed that there was many other ways to do that. But then I realized that I think the reason why I'm so annoyed Frustrated is that I didn't feel like I was given that mentorship or that community. So, what this new article that I saw, it's like this story keeps going on and on, speaking of stories. So, every time I read Fortune or other publications that are doing work life type of stories, and there's a lot of them right now, when they strike a chord, I send them to Veronica and I want to talk about them. So, this one, it's talking about how. It's not the quiet quitting, but it is these Gen Z young women are taking jobs that pay a decent salary that they can go and just do their thing, send their emails, have their couple of meetings, you know, work like normal reasonable hours and leave. Now they're never going to become you know, the CFO of the company. They're never going to be the leader of, you know, thousands of people around the world. And they don't care because they are finding the things that fulfill them outside of the work. So they're doing the work, they're showing up, they're doing a good job, but it's a very limited, a little bit transactional type of jobs where they're not expected to do really more than what's, you know, before them. And I don't think that they're hoping to get, you know, double promoted next year or anything like that, but they're going on vacations, they're traveling, they're, you know, doing things with friends. They're who knows what sort of, you know, arts and crafts and whatever they're doing outside. And that's where they're getting their fulfillment, not from the thought of making millions of dollars. And it does say in the article, like they're not going to own their own home, making this amount of money. You know, there's certain limitations, but they're okay with that because work is work and life is life and they want to have a fulfilled life. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I did start to do that. I started to do pro bono type stuff many, many years ago. I mean, 20 years ago, it sort of goes back to our discussion about in the office or not. You're supposed to have this big functional team and group at your job and you're going to climb the ladder and you're gonna you know, do all this work and get rewarded for it. And people are going to show you the door to the next level and the new things. That never happened for me either. And when I'm reading these stories now, I'm like, maybe I should have expected more from the places that I was working. And I didn't go and demand, you know, training or mentorship. And maybe I should have been. Yeah. So in reflecting on this, where I went and got those things was outside of work. I felt like everybody was just sort of very happy with the stasis.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess at the end of the day, it's like anything else. Like what, what is it that's important to you and what are your priorities? And then whatever you find, you know, something that you're consistently passionate about, you're going to make happen. I mean, I, I have a friend that really wanted to be a mom and she as a single mom now, made it happen, did all the things it took mm-hmm. and froze her eggs. I mean, it was like, right. that was her life's mission. Like I'm going to have a baby, right? Like yeah. I think anything you're just dying to do, you're going to make happen. Yes. So if you're dying to be an executive or, you know, start a company, I mean, for me, that was the most consistent thing, which is why I'm here as a CEO founding a company. Cause
2: mm-hmm.
0: that mattered more to me than at the time, kids or family, or mm-hmm. like that was like that was in my head, like yeah. I got to do something different because the way people are doing it is not what I have in my head. And that it's just became my, right? no, so it became a fixation of sorts. And then of course that was the trajectory it put me on. And most people that start companies, I was just talking to a friend of mine about founders. this. Most founders are myopic to the point of it being an obsession. Mm-hmm. It's very, very unusual that you can form a successful company without that being the only thing you care about for a stretch of time, and so I think this is a great example of the opposite, right? It's it's almost the polar opposite of me as the workaholic. that all I'm focused on is like success, success. I got to do this. Mm-hmm. I got to make this. Got to create this thing, right? And they're like, that's just not what my priority is. Like my priority is traveling, and like, you know, yeah being an influencer whatever the hell it is that they're doing on the side you know being an artist like maybe they're treating this like the thing that funds their their real career or whatever right and that's cool too because that's their focus so I think it just at the end of the day what everyone has to remember is like you're going to make happen whatever you care about most
1: and part of it also might have been I spent most of my late twenties into my forties not working at PR agencies. I was working as in-house PR, so their business was not PR. So they mm. were not so interested in my career progression. If I had worked at a PR agency for that time, it might have been different, mm-hmm. because then you're the person who's making money for the firm. I was I was a, a not I was a cost center at most of my jobs, and that's yeah. why I didn't have the same opportunity is because it wasn't what that company did for a living. Yeah. That was the choice I made. You know, I could get mad at myself or not or whatever, but I think at the end of the day, what you just said is true. Whatever you actually want is what you make happen, whether you realize it or not.
0: Yes. And yeah, you don't always realize it until you're older and then- you know, suddenly like, oops, I guess I didn't do the thing that I thought maybe I would someday do, but I never did prioritize it. So is it really like someone else's fault that it never happened? <laughs> like, right. It was never the thing I focused on, right? right? I think whatever you focus on is what happens. So, right. and I did see an interesting quote in the article about, we don't want to be lazy. We just don't want to work so hard in the system that's working against us. Mm-hmm. And I get I, that too, but then at totally. the same time, okay, break the system, start your own thing, right? So maybe this person that said that will eventually break the system and go create a new one, which is basically what I did, but I didn't wanna just exit well, actually, for a while, I did kind of exit the system. I kind of went off in freelance land and avoided agencies, mm-hmm. and then it was like, well, all right, let me try to just do it different,
2: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm grateful to
1: to them for just en masse, just being like, we're not working 24-7 anymore. We're not going to feel bad about taking time off. We're not going to hide yeah. the fact of who we are or what we do outside of the office. Right. So good and for them.
0: It's great. And then it's, I mean, if they go and create their own companies where they can keep that culture intact, then- And make money. Because you and have make to make money. money if you're in
1: business. So the reason why people get overworked is because- <laughs>
0: it's hard not to overwork your employees in order to keep and make money the fountain of of cash. Yeah. Well, and that, that is, I mean, I will tell you full disclosure, that's the biggest problem with doing business, right? How do you actually as a challenger brand that's treating people right, compete with the agencies who are overworking people and treating them like garbage, No. but it's also the kind of thing you can't, I just don't know how I would figure it out without trying to figure it out. Like I don't,
1: you have to experience it. You, somebody couldn't just tell you everything and you'd be like, okay, I believe it or I get it. You had to go through it. Mm-hmm. We'll see. We'll see You know what this generation does. It's hard not to take the path that everybody else takes.
0: Yeah. And there's a reason Apple. people don't, don't do know. it because it it is harder. Okay, with that, I think we are ready for our closing. Thank you for tuning in for the PR Wind Down podcast. And thank you so much, Jennifer, for an amazing interview about the power of storytelling. Remember to submit your own agency stories and questions and share our show with your friends and colleagues. If you subscribe and leave us a rating, it will help us reach new listeners like you.
1: And if you have an anonymous PR horror story of your own, please send it our way at the contact email below the episode notes.
0: Can't wait to wind down with you again next time.